Why don't you turn with me again to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 17. This is part five of our five-week journey through the book of Leviticus. Uh, We're going to be looking at the last 11 chapters together, so there's going to be a bit of a survey. Obviously, we're not going to go verse by verse or be able to comment on everything, but uh, we want to continue considering the book of Leviticus together. The story of how God has opened up a way for people to dwell, to live in his presence. And we know as we zoom out further, that way is provided for us through Jesus Christ. And so I want to pray in Jesus' name, ask the Lord's blessing uh, as we conclude this series together. Lord willing, next Sunday, Kevin will be in the pulpit and he's going to survey the book of Hebrews as kind of a culmination uh, to our study in the book of Leviticus. I think there'll be lots of direct connections. Uh, and then we will start into our Christmas series uh, after that. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to, to gather. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Help us to feel the weight of these uh, commands and instructions for us even today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself So do you help us to understand and apply it rightly? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first 16 chapters of Leviticus have really focused on the sacrificial system, right? So we have the sacrifices put in place and then the priests put in place. And then some some laws about clean and unclean. And then we had the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. How can a sinful people... Have a holy God dwell in their midst. God is providing a way. And now in the last 11 chapters, chapter 17 rather, through chapter 27, we have more of a focus on how they need to live as a community, as a community of faith. How should they live as a nation with God in their midst? What holds all these laws together would be this banner so everything we're going to see in these chapters kind of flies under this banner be holy for i am holy be holy for i am holy so how can yahweh dwell in the midst of a sinful people well it's very clearly through blood through blood we've seen this but also through israel being a holy people They must be holy. Their God is holy, so he calls them to holiness. And how should we understand then this call to holiness, right? We are not the nation of Israel. We are the church. We're not Jews, at least not the vast majority of us. We're Gentiles. We live on the other side of the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. We're not the Old Testament people of God. We're the New Testament or New Covenant people of God. Pentecost has happened. The Spirit has been given We call ourselves Christians. Much has changed. How do we? How do we understand this call to holiness? As we get into these chapters, I think it would be very easy to get bogged down uh, in some of the details and why we can't breed that kind of cattle with that kind of cattle. Or you can't have a shirt with two different types of material. We might find ourselves getting a little... A little lost. And so this morning we're going to kind of float up, gain some altitude, 
and begin to kind of orient ourselves. We'll see some key themes, some key passages, some things that are repeated, emphasized, that'll help us understand the goodness and the grace of God even in this law. Under it all, or sorry, over it all, the banner is, be holy for God is holy. This is a command that we find repeated in the New Testament. Be holy for God is is holy. We're going to get to three truths. I'm going to give them to you briefly. And then we are going to spend most of our sermon in the introduction. So here's the three truths we're going to get to. First, the call to holiness affects every aspect of your life. Second, the call to holiness is from beginning to end God-centered. God-centered. Third, the call to holiness is possible only because of God's past and future grace. But first, we want to clarify a few terms just briefly by way of reminder and then we'll survey these chapters go back to chapter 10 with me leviticus chapter 10 god's instruction to the priests aaron and his sons after the incident with nadab and abihu is found in leviticus 10 10 it really sets up what we saw in 11 through 15 look at leviticus 10 10 you that is you as priests are to distinguish between the holy and the common Between the unclean and the clean. So we said last week that everything is either holy or common. And if it's common, it's either clean or unclean. So it's either holy or common. And if it's common, it's either clean or unclean. The word common has the same root as the word profane. So to profane a holy thing is to make it common. Holy has the same root as to sanctify. So to sanctify a common thing is to make it holy. You see. So for something to move from holy to common is that it's profaned. It's made common. And to move from something that's common to holy, it has to be sanctified. We still use that word. The Bible uses that word in the Old and New Testament. So they're thinking in these categories. And for Israel as a nation, kind of the normal condition is clean. Wasn't true for the Gentiles. But for God's people who have been redeemed, the, the, the normal condition of most things, most people, not all, we saw that, is, is that to be clean. So sanctification makes the clean holy. Pollution makes the clean unclean and we saw some things some holy things are so holy that if you come in contact with them it's contagious and some things are so unclean that if you come in contact with them it's contagious and we saw two weeks ago jesus's holiness is contagious praise god to come in contact with jesus does not make him common he's not profaned rather he sanctifies all those who come in contact with him. Uh, those of you uh, who are married, you probably uh, have some relation to this next comment, which is in our in our marriage, we have a difference over how likely it is we are to go to the doctor. And we're all probably inconsistent with this certain things where, oh, man, we're got to go and others of, you know, no, I'm, I, the last thing I'm doing is going to the doctor. Like, that is the last thing I'm going. I'll let you guess as to which one of us, Suami and I, is more likely to go to the... It may not be what you're thinking. Uh, 
But, you know, you, you go to the doctor and, and at least in our, in our family, that lo- usually looks like, okay, I'm going to go to urgent care. Because in my case, it's a sinus infection. That's usually why I'm going to urgent care. I need some antibiotics. I've tried to hang in there. I can't anymore. I need some antibiotics. So you go and you see a PA or, or a doctor there at urgent care. And you're hoping they'll tell you what you think it is. Or at least what they think it is. And hopefully it'll line up with your expectations. But you know the great fear is to go to the doctor and for them to say, it's nothing. Thanks for paying. You know? It's, you're, you're normal. Oh, that's just a head cold. Oh, you pulled a muscle. It'll be fine. Take two Tylenol. Go home. Right? You don't want that. It's, it's, just, it's just normal. That's how clean is in Israel. It's just normal. Animals, certain kind, typical of their type. That's just normal. Skin disease, if it doesn't have certain symptoms, it's just normal for you to have that irritation. That that's, that's just normal. But then there's things that are not normal. Some of them get our attention. Things that aren't whole. Things that aren't complete. Someone from the tribe of Levi and Aaron's descendant who maybe has a deformity. That's not normal. That's that's fallenness on display. There's, there's something off there. So first, reminders, just clean, unclean, holy, common. Got that in a category. We're going to need those a little bit here today. Turn with me to chapter 17. Let's, let's begin going through the passage. If you've read through these verses, they are fascinating and bewildering, uh, these chapters. And so I want to try to Increase your fascination and maybe address some of your bewilderment. We're going to move through these chapters fairly quickly. We'll slow down at certain points as we just survey them uh, for the first part here of the sermon before we get to our, our points. Leviticus chapter 17 is really about blood. We've seen chapters about this before. It has to do with sacrifices. So you're not to make sacrifices outside of the tabernacle like the pagans do. There's mention in chapter 17 of goat gods. These are odd things, isn't it? And he's saying, no, you are to be, or goat demons rather, you are to be, you're to be distinct from the pagans who want to manipulate blood. There's tribes even in our world today that think if you, the life is in the blood and if something loses its blood, it's dead. And so if I kill that thing and drink its blood, maybe I'll gain its strength. There was some of this manipulation that would happen with blood. And he's saying, you're not to be like them. All the sacrifices happen in this context. You worship me this way. You don't get to make up your own ways of approaching me. You you don't eat blood, right? So there's some warnings beginning verse 10 about eating blood. Look down at verse 11. Here's the reason. 11 and 14 of chapter 17. Leviticus 17 verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Look down at verse 14. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. All of this kind of assumes a few things, right? 
Their souls are guilty and they need atonement made for their sins. And that God is really in the tabernacle, dwelling in their midst. And he really has revealed to them that there is no atonement that does not have blood. This is God's way, the way of approaching him. Hebrews 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Sacrificial system, yes, it made some cleansing and purified and forgiveness and atonement, but it couldn't take away sins fully and finally. That's why the day of atonement points forward to Jesus. Next week, we'll consider that from the book of Hebrews more more fully. Let's go to chapter 18 now. 18 is kind of negative prohibitions, and then 19 puts it positively, and then 20 is negative again. So first, the negative prohibitions regarding, again, these pagan practices especially around, around sexuality. Let's pick up in chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You, sh- uh, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. Right? So you don't do what they did, and you don't do what they did. You are to be a distinct people from the pagans, from the nations. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Don't live like the world. Egypt was about a year ago. This wasn't that long ago. Don't live like the Egyptians. Don't live like the Canaanites where you're going. I've given you my rules to follow, so follow them. The chapter then proceeds with repeated prohibitions. The, The phrase in the ESV is uncovering nakedness. It's a euphemism like making love or something like this, right? Prohibitions against immorality. Both heterosexual and homosexual are included in this chapter and again in chapter 20. Then in chapter 19, which we've already read the first 18 verses of, we have this call to holiness, this call to brotherly love, to be generous because God is generous, to leave some for the poor, to, to live distinct from the nations. You see a summary of the Ten Commandments in what Pastor Kevin read for us earlier. They're to be distinct Jump down to verse 33, the end of chapter 19. The central command is chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now down in verse 33, when a, so, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. There's the repetition. For, here's the reason, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do wrong in judgment, in measures of length and weight and uh, quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe all that my statutes All my statutes and my rules and do them. I am the Lord your God. Everything is to be holy. Not just 
in the intimate sphere, but all of life, all of business. Why? I am the Lord. His character is to be reflected in their character. Their character, rooted in a fear of him, is to tell the truth about his character. So Jesus will quote, as a summary of the law, even as Moses summarizes it here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James will do the same thing, right? He teaches in James chapter 2 about partiality, the context of what Kevin read earlier, and says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The New Testament reaffirms this command in its context because this command to love your neighbor as yourself reflects God's righteous character. So in the Old Testament, God gave his people the law. And in the New Testament, he gives us commands, law, instruction. And so it's not surprising that there's so much correspondence because the God who gave them has not changed. Chapter 20, we we go back to the punishments for disobedience. God has redeemed them from Egypt and then he gave them a law. And so he's giving them, this is what will happen if you break the law. We sometimes can read the Old Testament law and think that that God said, okay, here's the law. And if you keep this, I'll redeem you. But that was never the order, was it? No, he redeemed them and he gave them the law. Because... They're going to be in his presence. He gives them instruction. So he sanctifies them through his word. This is not works-based salvation. This is salvation by God's grace alone. And so he graciously sanctifies them through his word. That he might dwell in their midst. There's warnings. Look down in verse 7. Leviticus 27, consecrate yourself therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. That gets our attention, doesn't it? He has cursed his father or mother. His blood is upon him. This is the opposite of honoring your father and mother. As one author pointed out a society is defined by what it prohibits and i'd be willing to bet that people did not curse their father and mother in ancient israel you didn't go anywhere near that it was serious it was punishable god is again distinguishing his people from the nations go down to verse 22 you shall therefore Keep my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you may not vomit you out. Israel is to be holy, to to be faithful where Adam failed. Adam was vomited out of the Garden of Eden and Israel will be vomited out if they are not faithful. Don't, Don't do what Adam did. He polluted the land with his sin and so he was expelled from the land. Keep reading verse 23. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I detest them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who have separated you from the peoples. 
You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall make yourself, you shall not make yourself detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. He'll come back to that. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Then verse 21 and verse 22, he extends this call to holiness to the priests. These were priests by birth, not by choice. They were descendants of Levi and then of Aaron. Aaron had four sons. We know two of them are dead already. What does God require of them? Well, there's a certain accent that's put on it. Verse 8 of chapter 21, you shall sanctify them for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you for I, the Lord, your God, who sanctify you am holy. Verse 23, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. God sanctifies them. They are to be representatives of his righteousness, but it is God who is at work the whole time. So they are to be whole and they are to be holy. Verse 20, chapter 22, the holiness now extends to the offerings. They must be perfect and without blemish. Look at chapter 22, verse 31, an anchor in the text. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. The Lord had put his name on the nation. So the nation was to represent the Lord, their God. Their worship would reflect God and uh, display God, give testimony to God's character to the nations. They had a relationship with God, mediated through the tabernacle, mediated through these priests. And so these priests and the tabernacle were to be holy. They were to be holy. They were to be a, a kingdom of priests, we see back in Exodus chapter 19. Israel here is not sanctified by kind of pulling it together and getting their act together morally, but by living in the presence of God. He will sanctify them. It says it over and over So their holiness now extends to their time, to their calendar. Chapter 23, you have an overview of these feasts. They're to observe the Sabbath as a weekly reminder that God created the world and then he rested. And when they rest, they have an opportunity to rehearse God's work in their midst. They're to remember the Passover, to enter into the events and act them out again, reflecting on what God has done for them, never reflecting, never forgetting, rather, their redemption. You have a feast of first fruits, again, a reminder that God has provided and he will provide again. So we trust him. And on and on they go. Each one of these feasts reinforcing not just their history, but the history, the story of God redeeming his people. We don't have these feasts today, but we have ways that we use our time to remember what God has done. We have the Lord's Day and we have the Lord's Supper. These are reminders. So we gather on the first day 
of the week as a reminder that our sacrifice rose. Rose from the dead. And all our lives are to be lived under him. We gather around this table, especially on the first Sunday of the month. A meal of remembrance as we enter into and retell in some ways the story of our redemption. Christ's body broken, his blood shed, reinforcing this into our lives. And so he moves from the Feast of Booths at the end of 23 to the tabernacle, the booth, the tabernacle, in chapter 24 with a reminder regarding the lamp and the bread. And we can't help but hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. You come to me and I will save you and I will sanctify you. I will sustain you. And then we have a warning. A story comes in chapter 24, beginning in verse 10. It's a Nadab and Abihu kind of moment, right? Everything's going really good. We're reminded about that priest entering into the holy space and... We got the, the candle and the light and we got the bread of presence and oh, everything's so good. And then someone profanes his name. And it jolts us back to reality. And so we see at the end of the book of Leviticus, a warning, warnings of blessings and curses. And the more we read them, the more we realize, okay. This seems a little more prophetic than, well, hypothetical, shall we say, right? It's just really specific. He says, okay, if you follow me, here are the blessings that'll come. If you uh, look over chapter 26, beginning in verse 3, maybe a to-do for this afternoon would be to read Leviticus 26, 3 through 13, And note the parallels to Genesis 3. If you've been studying on Wednesday night, Romans 8 with us, you know Romans 8 has this theme of reversing the curse and its effects. The redemption of creation, right? Creation's groaning, we're groaning, it needs to be redeemed. And he promises blessing that undoes the curses of Genesis 3, almost line by line. If they will walk in my statutes and observe them. Then I'm going to bring rain and I'm going to bring blessing. This is going to be a taste of heaven. And then beginning in chapter 26, verse 14, we have this warning, warning after warning after warning. The first stage comes in verse 14. Let's read. Leviticus 26, 14, but if you, lo- if you do not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you do not do all my commandments, but break my covenant. If, if you, if you don't obey If you don't follow me, if you don't listen to me, if your soul abhors my law, my word, my rules, there's a warning that comes in the next verse. This is a reminder 
that God has graciously revealed to us in his word what he expects of us, what obedience looks like. And it's a warning that we should not take the Bible lightly, but we should read the Bible and internalize the Bible. We want to heighten our exposure to scripture. We have so much access in our day, in our language, in our possession. We know a lot of things. Do we know our Bibles? Do we know what the Lord expects of us? Maybe if you're honest, and I see this at times in, in my own heart, a heart that, that abhors, that, that, that grades against God's rules. So when we have greedy hearts, we don't like calls to generosity. When our hearts are full of lust, we don't like calls to purity. We don't like statements regarding morality or restraints on sexuality. Here's the warning. Check your heart. Embrace the Bible and God's perspective on what is good and right and beautiful. If you don't, look at verse 16. I will visit you with panic. With wasting disease and fever. And he goes on. There's no stability for the one that knows they are wrong before God. And then there's these stages, these cycles in the warning. I will warn you and warn you. And if you don't repent, it's going to ratchet up. It's going to get more intense and more intense. Then the last stage begins in verse 27, goes all the way down to verse 36. If there is no repentance, it'll be the opposite of the blessing that you saw back in verse 3 to verse 12. It'll be the opposite of this. I will drive you from the land. I will give my land rest by driving you away, by punishing you. Then 26 verse 40. But if they confess their iniquities, after all of this warning, and iniquities of their fathers and their treachery that they have committed against me and also walk contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then, then I will remember my covenant with Isaac, my covenant, sorry, with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham. And I will remember the land, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurn my rules and their soul abhors my statutes. Yet for all that, When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Wow. If you break my law and you despise the covenant I made with you at Sinai, if you ignore these rules, if you abhor my word and repent... I will remember my covenant with Abraham. There's this expectation even in Moses' law here. That the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai will be broken. 
And yet the Lord is going to continue to show mercy and to pursue his people on the basis of the covenant with Abraham. This is exactly what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. This is what I mean, Paul writes. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The, the blessings of Abraham are going to come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the Holy Spirit. Chapter 26 is to get their attention. It's to get our attention. It's to help us read the law rightly within the story of redemption. This is how one author put it. God is saying, you're going to go into the land, break the covenant, be exiled. From exile, you're going to repent and the Lord is going to bring you back to himself. And he's going to bless you in accordance with not your faithfulness, but his faithfulness. His promises. And then chapter 27, he ends with these vows and these donations that are to be promised to the Lord. Let's step back now and consider these three points of application. First, the call to holiness affects every aspect of your life. It did in Israel's day. And it does in our day. There was no doubt in Israel... You can live like holiness matters, or you can live like holiness doesn't matter. But God has made it so clear, it matters. No matter how you choose to live, it matters. Is that how you think about holiness in your life? It matters? Your holiness? My holiness? Personal holiness? Does it matter to God? 1 Peter chapter 1 we have written the banner, again, applied to us under the new covenant. You are to be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for the holiness without which you will not see God. Hebrews says strive for holiness. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We, uh, earlier this year, moved into a 1903 farmhouse. And this house has had many iterations and uh, just lots of little surprises. And one of them is in Suemi and I's bedroom. Uh, when we moved in, it had all these kind of um, nice, but, you know, the fake electric fireplaces. So it had like a fake mantle. There's no actual fireplace there. Uh, and so we, we, we were kind of poking around, and they just put black. They just painted black a piece of, like, insulation. And when you moved that, there was this whole, like, little cubby room behind the fireplace. And so we've, the last couple of days, we've, we've moved it out, and you can see in there. You can see the old wood paneling that evidently used to be in the room. You can see when they kind of framed it shut and tried to hide it and jerry-rigged the electric. And it, it's, it's all there, right? Our, our lives can be like, we got cubby spaces, we got closets in our lives. We got drawers in our lives. And, and when God moves in, he says, I care about every part of your life, every aspect of your life. Even that cubby that no one can see, even that closet, even the, even the drawer in the back, every aspect of your life. God wants to transform it all. He wants you to yield that area to him, that relationship, those finances, that plan, that desire, every room, every closet, every cubby, every drawer. 
Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Complete love. Complete dedication. So it's no surprise that the Old and New Testament deals with all areas of our lives, including our sexuality. We could put it like this. God calls us to holiness in every area, even the minor ones, even the mundane ones, because he knows we live our lives in the minor and the mundane. So the call to holiness in Leviticus isn't odd. It's surprisingly complete, but it's setting us up for God's expectation throughout Scripture. So if we're not pursuing holiness when we're at work, or on a trip, when we're at home by ourselves, when no one is around, when we're tired, when we're busy, when we're stressed. We're kidding ourselves, right? Holiness in all of life has always been God's requirement. So how you use your time and your money and your, your gifting and your attention span and your longings and your downtime, it all matters to God. And this call to holiness isn't a call to joylessness, but to happiness, deep abiding happiness and satisfaction, a clear conscience and Christ-like character and integrity that allows us to move out into the world with boldness. So pursue holiness in all things, even the minor and mundane. We don't live by the Mosaic law. But we do live in accordance with God's word and his instruction and his commands, the law of Christ. And we pursue holiness in line with his unchanging character. We can get even more specific. Leviticus challenges us to be specific in our love to others. In our love to others. I think this is the principle. A neighbor who is loved generally and never loved specifically is rarely loved biblically. A neighbor who is loved generally and never loved specifically is rarely loved biblically. Leviticus is specific. Even the New Testament's call is specific, but in different ways for us to work it out in our culture, in our context, to love that person. Yeah, that one as ourselves. The call to holiness affects every aspect of our lives. Point number two, the call to holiness is from beginning to end God-centered. The meaning of holiness in the Bible is this idea of purity and separateness and dedicated to God, right? Oriented to God. To be holy is to be fully dedicated or devoted to God himself. So in our passage, fruit is holy. People are holy. Things are holy. Days are holy. Animals are holy. They're dedicated to God. They're given over to him. So only holiness that centers on God is really holiness. We confuse it, I think, sometimes. So it may be conservative. It may be minimalistic or sanitary or whatever else you're picturing but if it isn't focused on god it isn't holiness holiness apart from god isn't holiness at all the motivation is that we belong to him he says again and again i am the lord i am the lord your god you belong to me i redeemed you out of egypt 
It's shocking that at the end of the book of Leviticus, in 11 chapters, 10 times, Moses reminds them that he saved them out of Egypt. I have a practice as I'm reading my Bible, is I just write E and I circle it. Every time I see Egypt after Exodus. That's live in light of the cross. That's do not forget the God who redeemed you. You can move forward, but you can't move past my redemption. You bring it with you every step of the way. You belong to me. I am yours. Or you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. That's New Testament language. First Corinthians chapter 6. This isn't a holiness that secures our redemption, but this is because of the redemption that's been secured by God in Christ. We pursue holiness. And this holiness displays God to the nations. It is for the sake of his name. So brother or sister in Christ who struggles with apathy, your sanctification will matter to you only when you first realize it matters to God. It isn't all about you getting your act together, pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps. Here's 12 rules. Here's eight rules for life. No, none of that. It begins with God. It's all about him from beginning to end. Him and his glory, the meaning, the motivation, The purpose, the mission are all centered on him. And when you see yourself in relation to him, you're freed from the preoccupation with yourself. You're free to pursue radical obedience to God's word in all areas of life. Third and finally, the call to holiness is possible only because of God's past and future grace. He reminds them of Egypt again and again and again. And they're God's past grace in redeeming them is motivation, but gratitude towards holiness in the future. He promises again and again, we read several of them, not all of them, where he will sanctify them. He will sanctify his people. There is future grace. He is at work in their lives, in their midst. So the call to holiness is possible only because of God's past and future grace. And that gives us faith. It gives us gratitude. We see, I am the Lord who redeems and we pursue holiness. We see, I am the Lord who sanctifies and we know we can obey because he is with us and he is for us. God's past grace secures the guarantee of his future Grace, he who did not spare his son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Israel's redemption from Egypt grounds the promise that God is their God now and God will sanctify them now. God is making Israel holy through his word, through these laws. And so the call to holiness is a call to do what God is doing. God is at work in the lives of his people. The work of Israel was to be in line with what God was doing, sanctifying them. So we're back to where we began. Be holy, for I am holy. How about us? 
How about us? So we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Friends, the call to holiness today is a call to do what God is doing. God is sanctifying those who believe in him. He's making us more like his son, more holy by his spirit. He is working out our salvation in us. So, so we work it out. This is grace enabled obedience from a place of security. That is the glory of the promise of the gospel and the gift of the spirit. So brothers and sisters, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Trust his promised future grace today at work in your life as you answer his call on your life today. And it is a call to holiness. Let's pray. Father God, we admit that sometimes we confuse the access we have to you in Christ with perhaps a, a lesser call to holiness. Because we've, we've been forgiven, we're no longer under the Mosaic law, but under the law of Christ and our lives are marked by so much grace. We can begin to slip and think that our holiness no longer matters to you. That us living distinct lives is somehow optional for the Christian. Father God, we pray that you would use Leviticus 17 to 27 to Move us from the broad to the particular to give us the weight of your glory, and your holiness, and to feel again the requirement of our own. May we in our day, resting in Christ, strive for the holiness without which we will not see the Lord. Thank you that we strive because you are already at work in our midst. We thank you. That you have not called us to sanctify ourselves, but you have promised to sanctify us, to work in our hearts and lives, to conform us to the image of your Son. Father, we pray for those here this morning who are outside of Christ, who encounter your holiness in these laws and do not love your word but abhor it who do not love you in your way, but despise it. We pray that you would humble them, that you would bow their knee, that they would hear these warnings and that they would turn and trust in Christ alone, that they might be rescued, that they might be redeemed. Would they see your steadfast love in Leviticus 26? Father God, we ask now as we respond in worship and are dismissed from here today that you would be glorified in all of our lives, even the cubbies. And we pray these things in Christ's name.